That was, as Diane mentioned, the epistle reading for the day. We mentioned that we are working with the lectionary this year, uh, in this year for hope, where we get readings from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, Gospels, and New Testament. Um, and we are in this season of epiphany, which is a time when we look at some of the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at his baptism, and today, the calling of the first disciples. Epiphany is a season where we look at Jesus manifesting himself as God, and then, of course, towards the end of February, beginning of March, we will get into the season of Lent. In this particular passage, um, it's at the beginning of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. You know, there's two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, and, and as Paul, uh, the first seven verses of this chapter are wonderful. He tells them all these great things about how they're saints and all this stuff. And then at verse 8, he starts kind of lowering the boom. And um, Paul, um, we get a glimpse of how things are going in the Corinthian church. And as we get this glimpse, we don't have to read very far and find out things are not really going that well in the Corinthian church. As we heard in the reading, there's some divisions in that early church, and there's different allegiances to different leaders. There's dissent uh, within the church. It's a good thing that only happens in the church and not in our nation, right? Anyway, just want to make sure you're with me. But seriously, and now that's serious as well, but as we look at this text, it's a reminder that it gets messy in church life. It ain't nothing new, is it? <laughs> The Corinthian church in the first century, it gets messy in church life. Because you know what? Just look around and you'll notice that church is made up of real people. Um, real people who know and love Jesus, but we aren't exactly perfect in behavior and attitudes yet, right? But as Paul addresses this disunity of the Corinthian believers, he also takes them to the deep core of the church. He takes him to the gospel. He says, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And at our core uh, is the gospel. Even when it gets complicated, even when it gets messy, is our commitment to the mission of God in and through Jesus Christ. The church was then and it is still the hope of the world. God choosing to reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and now the church functioning as the body of Christ bringing hope to the world. It's why it's so essential that we get it right and watch for what it is that distracts us from the gospel and what causes us to turn inward rather than outward to a world in need. The church is made up of real people and Jesus started it with just a few followers, just a few people that he called. It was Jesus' strategy in the beginning. He had a strategic plan, yes. It was his strategy to develop a disciple community. And it's what we see developing in the rest of the New Testament and what we continue to be a part of today. What began as a few disciples that we'll read about in Matthew 4 is now billions of disciples around the world. That's the epistle reading from Paul. Now let's zero in on the gospel reading for today from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. And as we are doing during this year of hope out of respect for the gospel as the heart of Jesus, would you please stand as we read the gospel? If you are able. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. 
They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus is calling these guys to be followers or disciples, to use the word we see in Scripture. He's calling them to be the church, but in his sending, he's saying, go fish. He's also calling them not only to be disciples, but to go fishing and to make disciples as well. The call is here in Matthew 4 to be disciples, and it anticipates the call at the end of Matthew's gospel, where in chapter 28 he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you as you do that. Jesus is calling them, and he's calling us, to be disciples who make disciples. Jesus' simple invitation in Matthew's gospel is a call to us to, to grow as disciples with a commitment to invite others on this journey into the kingdom to be disciples who make disciples. We're going to look at, first of all, this call to be disciples and secondly, this call to make disciples and then ask ourselves, are we ready to be disciple makers? It's actually part of our church mission statement, by the way, to be disciple makers who know, love, and serve God. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. But first of all, we're called to be disciples. This is all happening in Galilee, which if you remember Bible geography, or don't, it's the northern part of the nation that is now, now Israel. And Galilee is really not a sea, it's just a lake. It was called the Sea of Galilee, but it's a lake. And Matthew here is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this is the Old Testament reading for the day. It's the one that goes on to say, a child shall be born, a son is given to us. But he notes that the old tribes, the, old, the original 12 tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, settled here in Galilee in the north. And Galilee at the time of Jesus is actually one of the most populous parts of the Holy Land. It was a very fertile valley and it was surrounded by Gentile lands. Uh, ten cities to the east and Phoenicia to the west along the Mediterranean, Syria to the north and Samaria to the south. They were surrounded actually by Gentile peoples. And Capernaum was the lead city on the north end of the lake and it was, became a home base for Jesus. Uh, Peter's home was there where Jesus went and, and, and healed Peter's mother-in-law. That was in Capernaum a city that is only in ruins now. And along the shore of Galilee, Jesus finds and calls his first four disciples, and I would call them his early adopters. These guys are his early adopters, the first four. Now, some of you know if you work in organizational change and development, that to lead any kind of organizational change or culture change, uh, you need and you have to have and you need early adopters. You need a visionary leader and you need early adopters. Not everybody needs to be on board first, but you need to at least have a, a core of early adopters to get this thing going. The early adopters are usually the, <clears throat> the enthusiastic, the positive, those who are willing to, to take risks and try something new. <clears throat> they're even willing to try things that might be a little bit unproven, but they get excited by the vision and they're ready to jump on board. And after the early adopters are what we call the early majority. Those are the pragmatic people uh, that, that kind of watch what happens with the early adopters and say, yeah, I think we can do that and jump on as well. After them is the next biggest group, which are the, the late majority. Those are the ones that need to see the proof that this thing is really working. Once we see that it's working, the late majority will jump on board. 
And the final section is called, the, the final group of people are the, what we call the late mass, the late mass. Those are the skeptics. Those are the ones most resistant to change. You probably, and you probably, of all of these, you probably know who you are. I could probably have you raise hands and say, who, who, who identifies himself as an early adopter? It would be a, probably about 16% of you. And who, who identifies as that late mass and probably another 16% and the rest of you fall in the middle somewhere. Jesus is the visionary leader, obviously, and he goes searching and his father leads him to the early adopters. It says that they followed immediately. They followed immediately. There's something magnetic and authoritative about this leader. It's possible that Jesus has had prior contact with them as well, but they they jump to it immediately. Mark uses the word immediately all the time. Matthew just uses it a few times and he uses it here. Now, these guys are just ordinary men. They are not poor people, but they're just simple working people. They're not highly educated. They're average guys. And we know that these guys, as we get to know them a little bit, are individualistic. They are not the bravest. They are not the easiest to work with. Peter was impulsive and headstrong. Andrew was a little more subtle, homespun and supportive. James and John, we know, were ambitious. They're the ones that wanted to sit on the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom. They were called the sons of thunder. But these four trusted Jesus and they responded and they followed. Now, a rabbi calling disciples was not an unusual thing or a rabbi working with disciples. But most of the rabbis would wait for disciples to actually put in an application. They actually had to apply to be a disciple. And then they would, end, they would finish their discipleship and be graduated out. But in this case, Jesus is recruiting his disciples. And as you know, we never graduate as disciples. These guys were called and discipled. They were learners and followers. They were learning what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. They were learning how to do it. They were learning about, well, they were learning about fishing, among other things. Disciple making, as you know, involves all kinds of things, of learning to trust Jesus, learning what it means to seek God in devotion and worship, learning a life of prayer, what it means to pray and to listen in prayer. A disciple learns about what it means to have a depth of commitment, a disciple learns what it means to, to, to do acts of service uh, for others and what it means to sacrifice in order for the common good and the, and the greater good of the gospel. A disciple learns what it means to have compassion and mercy not only for those who are easy to love and care for inside, but compassion and mercy for those out on the margins. A disciple learns what stewardship and generosity means, that everything they have is not their own, but is a gift from God. That's what a disciple learns, and they're learning all of that stuff. And these disciples are learning obedience, what it means to obey God as he calls. And they're learning about fishing. My younger brother sent me some family photos he had made from some old Kodachrome slides that were taken back in the 1950s. Some of them are really fun. A couple of them show me and my two older siblings at Disneyland in 1957. I went to Disneyland in 1957. But I love this one. Do we have, there we are. Uh, that's me on the, the left, the cute one. Uh, and it's my annoying brother. On the, I mean, my, my, brother, my dear brother, John, uh, who's four years older than I. The pictures were sent by my younger brother, Steve, who is not even a whisper of a hint at this point in our life. And uh, I love this one. I'm about four or five years old, and we are at Lake Mamie, which is one of the Mammoth Lakes, if you know the Mammoth Lakes regions of California, the southern part of the Sierras. We would go there often as a family to hike, and apparently this time, Dad was teaching us how to fish. Another one of the slides in this group of slides... 
was, was, it was written on the frame of the slide. It says, Johnny's first fish. This is so funny that my mom would not let me be called Scotty, but we called my other brother Johnny. I don't get that. You may call him Johnny when you meet him. But anyway, um, so it says, Johnny's first fish. And I think mine came the next summer. I can remember that first fishing. We were learning how to fish, but I actually only remember fishing a couple more times as a family. We all got more into hiking and climbing and activity. Uh, We did more of that in the years following. And the rest of my family gravitated towards golf, and I ran as far as I could to skiing and other things like running. We won't go into my golf issues now, though, because that has nothing to do with the sermon. So we learned how to fish, but we didn't put into practice much. And so I have to admit that I have never, ever fed my poor family a fish that I have caught. But seriously, discipleship is about life skills. It's about kingdom skills. We are called to be disciples. We're told how and we learn how to live this life as followers of Jesus, to live in relationship to Jesus, working with him to advance the kingdom. So first we are called to be disciples and secondly we are called to make disciples. Jesus says at the, end of, or at the end of Matthew's gospel, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Historically, we have seen that as, that as the missionary call, to go there and send those missionaries out to go and make disciples while we stay here home and, and support them. <laughs> but we know that that's a call really to all of us. It's not just a call to traditional world missions. It's a call to be missions, to be missional. It's a call to outreach. It's a call to evangelism. It's a call to soul winning. It's a call to sharing our faith. It's a call to witnessing whatever you want to call it. And it's been called all those things. And we've put each of those words in neat little boxes, haven't we? (laughs) It's all the same thing. It's the mission of God. It's the mission of God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. To be missional is to be all of that. Missional doesn't just mean projects we do outside the building. Missional means to be part of God's mission of redeeming this world and setting up his kingdom. You could never, if it, with that definition of missional, you could never say a church is too missional, could you? It's pursuing the agenda of God. It's pursuing the priorities of Christ. It's not just a biblical social justice thing when we talk about being missional. We are on mission with him. Go make disciples is what we are about as a church. Now, I want to narrow it down a little bit, though, and I'm going to use two words. I couldn't decide which one to use because they both get confusing. So I'm just putting two words together with a slash between them. I, I like to do that. And I'm using outreach and evangelism as one concept right now. Outreach evangelism. Outreach, sometimes we just think, again, as projects. But what does it mean to go out with the good news of Jesus Christ? So we're going to call it outreach and evangelism for now. How do you really feel about outreach and evangelism? How do you really feel about sharing the good news? Well, there's always fear, shame, and guilt, right? (laughs) Those are familiar. I'm kind of afraid to do it. I feel so bad that I don't do it. It, do it. That's the problem right there, isn't it? <laughs> Seriously, for some with the gift of evangelism, they say, oh, I love it. I, I love meeting people. I love sharing the good news of Christ. But for the rest of us who may not have the gift of evangelism, it can seem daunting. And I think it's even more daunting in, in our current rapidly changing culture where people keep giving different definitions to our words <laughs> of outreach and evangelism. 
A rapidly changing culture where sometimes it seems like the gospel might be offensive, which in a sense it is, but we feel like we might be offensive to the people that we're sharing with, and we might come across as pushy rather than offering good news. And even though it's good news, we, even though it's good news and we know it's true, sometimes we feel a reluctance because we might be offending. It becomes easier to think as we look at people who seem somewhat spiritual, well, they seem spiritual, they're probably okay. When deep inside there could be a deep brokenness in them that needs to be healed by Jesus Christ. And sometimes deep, deep inside, we may not be even convinced it's all that true. If we've not experienced really the transformation of Christ in our own lives, we're, we're not so sure this is something that we ought to convince somebody else of. Or we feel that we need to defend the church rather than to present the good news of Jesus. And defending the church gets messy because the church is messy. <laughs> All of these things come in. Now, I'm, I asked you a question, but of course I'm not asking for a response, but I want you to think about that question, about how you really feel about evangelism and outreach. So we may feel these things, this reluctance, this fear a little bit, and yet we believe in God and we see the desperate need for hope in our world. We see the desperate need for healing and reconciliation within people, between people and God, and we see this desperate need for reconciliation among peoples in the world. And we know that ultimately it can only come in Jesus. We can legislate and vote and march all we want. And those are good things to do in the right setting. But ultimately, true reconciliation will only come in Jesus Christ. But we become overwhelmed by the task, and we don't, need, we don't, we don't know where to start. I think today, we need a new perspective. We need a new perspective on evangelism. And I'm, I'm excited to see what's happening in our evangelical covenant family as a response to this. In the past, we would have a director of evangelism, and he or she would present Bring My World to Christ. Some of you remember that, where you list names you pray for. The covenant took a little break, and now we're re-engaging evangelism in a little bit different way. We now have a full-time director of evangelism, Beth Severson, who is doing a dynamic job. And one of the things Beth is doing is she is putting together cohorts right now, cohorts of pastors who meet once a month for a whole day, do a lot of reading, and are held accountable for, uh, for evangelism and developing plans. For, and I am in a cohort. <laughs> I'm in the cohort. We began in September. We meet monthly. Uh, it's pastors from all over northern Illinois, drive many, many miles, and I walk down the hall because we meet at Naperville Covenant. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, but we meet here once a month, the second, generally the second Wednesday of the month. And we are doing some reading, we are doing some wrestling with things, we are being challenged in terms of our own approach to evangelism and, uh, and looking in new ways at doing it. One of the books that we're reading that I, I really am appreciating so much is called Reimagining Evangelism by Rick Richardson. And Rick is a great guy. Rick is on faculty at Wheaton. He's also part of the InterVarsity uh, team as well. Um, he's, not a, he's not a covenanter, but he's uh, friends with many of them, quotes many here in his book, and has collaborated a lot uh, with our department and with Beth. Beth is working on a doctor. Her, her doctorate in evangelism and uh, particularly studying how the gospel is taking hold among uh, millen- the millennial generation. And it is. There, there's, there's hope, by the way. It's not an old message. It's an old message, but it's not a dusty old message. It's very much alive. I just want to read you a little bit from Rick and then uh, make a couple other points. At the beginning, he says this. Over the years, evangelism has gotten a bad name. It is sales, manipulation, TV preachers, big hair, pushing people to convert and going door to door. 
It elicits feelings similar to the intrusive practice of telemarketing. As Becky Pippert quips in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, it is something you wouldn't want to do to your dog, much less a person in your life. Evangelism has always had image problems, but the image problems for evangelism have only gotten worse in recent years. Photos of religious people, true believers running planes into buildings and suicide bombing innocent men, women, and children have only reinforced the pervasive conviction in our society that people who think they know the truth and that everybody else is wrong are not only misguided, but positively dangerous. How did we get to this place? How did a word that means good news get such bad press? And there is a way beyond the pres- is there a way beyond the present impasse? Can we redeem the word and the practice of evangelism? The time has come to examine and perhaps jettison our old paradigms and pictures of evangelism. The time has come to reimagine how we picture and practice sharing the good news about Jesus. The time has come because the old pictures and practices aren't wearing well and aren't working well. People in our culture aren't responding, and people in the church aren't excited or engaged. Many believers are as uncomfortable with and turned off by evangelism as the irreligious are. The time has come because our culture is shifting. We are moving from a modern, rationalistic, technique-oriented culture to a more imaginative, experiential, and story-oriented culture. Our memorized scripts and canned techniques may have helped an older generation reach out to the unchurched, but at this point in history, our techniques and scripts are more a hindrance than a help. The time has come because God is at work in new ways. People today are spiritual but not dogmatic. They want to know that God is real and not merely reasonable. They're looking for stories and experiences and connection to God more than logic and proof and reasons for God. And in the midst of this growing hunger for authenticity and reality, God is moving and God's spirit is manifesting in powerful ways. The time has come because the West is no longer leading the way. Our teachers and mentors in the evangelism adventure are now African and Asian and Latin American peoples. The balance of spiritual power is in the world is shifting to the global south. People who have suffered persecution, serve the poor in the midst, and learn to love their enemies have an evangelistic vitality that is contagious. They're now calling us to recover our spiritual vigor. We in the West are now more learners and receivers Uh, than leaders and senders. And the most crucial thing we are relearning from our brothers and sisters in the global south is the role and reality of the Holy Spirit in witness. I won't read you the whole book. But Rick in this book gives us some examples of... um, of ways of shifting and, 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 and connecting and communicating the good news. I just want to share quickly what some of these shifts are from the old way to the new way. The first thing he mentions is to move from collaboration versus activism. Activism is I've just got to get out there and, and share the good news. Whereas collaboration, what he means by collaboration is with the Holy Spirit. Lord, prepare the hearts of people. Lord, give me opportunities. Lord, give me the words. Help me to see where there is spiritual hunger. Collaboration versus activism. Community versus individual. I just need to go out there rather than our church needs to grasp this. We as a community can have a witness as well. What does our vision statement say? Imagine uh, what kind of community? Inviting. And that means a quality to uh, who we are as a community. An inviting community. Do you know that more people now are coming to Christ in the context of community than just through one-on-one contacts? 
The millennials that are coming to Christ are becoming part of a community without believing, but being drawn in by relationships and authenticity and connections with people they trust and then coming to Christ. Community versus individual. Friendship versus agenda. The agenda is, I got to close the deal. I got to make the win. I'm going to go soul winning. That's what happens there, right? If I could just get a few more, you know, I'll get more stars in my crown. But now the sense is more of a friendship, real friendship, not just with an agenda, but friendship to be friendship. Story versus dogma. The old way says we have truths to communicate. The new way says the truth is still very important, but we don't start there. People are more interested in the experiential reality of God. They're more interested in our story of how we've experienced God moving than they are the facts and the truth. That does come, but it does not I mean, that's where we have to start. Story is so important these days to people. And then I love this one, the outside-the-box Jesus versus the cliché Jesus. You ask anybody, what do you know about Jesus? They know about Jesus. Everybody knows about Jesus. But their view of Jesus may not be the right one. And so we introduce this radically loving, culture-bashing, margin-stretching Jesus outside the box. And then this one, the good news about the kingdom versus the good news about the afterlife. You got to come to Jesus, so you go to heaven. Well, that's true, but there's a whole lot in between, isn't there? (laughs) Jesus didn't really talk much about the afterlife. He didn't say, come to me so that you'll go to heaven when you die. He said, come to me and be part of this kingdom. Become part of this adventure that's going on here. The kingdom, God is invading the world with this kingdom. Come be a part of it before we usher in the final kingdom as well. And then finally, another place of change is journey versus event. An event is pray the prayer, enter the kingdom, done. But a journey says it's a process of learning. And so that's why Rick's subtitle is inviting friends on a spiritual journey. It's a different way. It's the same evangelism. It's the same gospel. It doesn't water down any of the truth, but it's a different way of approaching it. Can you hear that difference? Any early adopters out there want to go a little farther with me? At least 16 of you? Good, so... Nobody raised their hand. You're still taking it in. That's okay. <laughs> Reimagining how we do this. Are you ready to be disciple makers? <laughs> We've got to be convinced that the good news is good. <laughs> We've got to be convinced that the good news is really good. It is good news. It really is good news. When I was in college, I learned the four spiritual laws. I was part of a volunteer group of Campus Crusade in my early years when I went to college in California before I transferred to Wheaton. And those laws are still good. They say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Law two is man is sinful and separated from God. Uh, Back then we said just man, but it was woman too. Uh, Man is sinful and separated from God, therefore he cannot experience God's love. Law three was Jesus is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him you can know and experience God's love. And verse four, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, uh, and then we can know and experience God's love. So uh, we, we must individually receive him. And th- those, those are great, but there's, there's other ways of presenting that, that that speak a little more in the language of today that still get at the heart of the gospel. I just heard this this week at, at our cohort, actually. Number one is God is good and beautiful. God is good and beautiful. God is a God of, of beauty and, and wonder. Number two, God tells us the truth about our brokenness. People are much more open to recognizing the brokenness in their life than to hear from us that they're a sinner. They are, 
But brokenness is a way of entering that going. And then we get to why is there brokenness in me? Why is there brokenness in most of the people that I know? We know that sin is behind it, but God tells us the truth about our brokenness. Thirdly, God restores relationships. God restores relationships to him and to others. And the fourth rewrite of the law is God invites us on an adventure. God invites us on an adventure, not just to heaven, he does, but he invites us on an adventure now to make all things new and to join him in his mission. Now, yes, we still need scripture. We need the support of scripture. We need a deep understanding of sin and the brokenness we have with God. We need to uh, emphasize the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus. But can you see how these, these questions may actually be more likely to open up conversation? as we get to know people and listen to them. Most people can relate to questions of brokenness and a desire for restoration. And so I just want to kind of get you ready to bless people. Getting ready to bless, okay? All right. Bless um, is an initiative that's coming from the covenant and out of Beth's office. As I mentioned earlier, some of you um, remember bringing my world to Christ. If you're newer to the covenant, you may not be familiar, but we used to do it. Uh, usually it happened in spring or early spring during Lent. We had two lists side by side. They were identical, and one of them we kept and one of them we brought forward. And on that list, we listed people that we were praying for that they would come to Christ, right? Remember, how many remember bringing my world to Christ? How many of you think that's a, never heard of it, but you think, wow, that's kind of a neat idea. Yeah, it was a great idea. But we'd done it year after year after year and, and found that there still was not a, there, not a whole lot of energy. It was like we prayed that day and for a few weeks and then kind of forgot. Well, this is a new initiative called BLESS. And these brochures, will um, be, we'll be getting them at midwinter in a couple weeks and sharing them with you in March. But I happen to know somebody that works in Beth's office, so I got one. Anyway, uh, the works at Partners with Beth in Ministry. Not that it's about me or her. Let me just share a little bit what, what, what bless is, what B-L-E-S-S is. The B stands for begin with prayer. Pray for people in your life who are far from God. Ask this question, how, God, how do you want to use me to bless the people in my life? How do you want to use me to bless the people in my life? Just pray for people. The L is for listen. So much of evangelism in the past is focused on what we say, but the second part here is listening to them. Pay attention to people. Listen to their story. Pay attention to their dreams and to their pain. And listen for places where God may already be at work in their life as well. E is for eat. (laughs) That means to share meals or share life with people in your life who do not know God. You know, take, take some time. Have a neighbor, the neighbor that you've been praying for, have them over. That coworker say, let's do lunch together, whoever it might be. Share meals and life with people uh, in your life. The first S is for serve. Serve with love. Be attentive to opportunities God provides you to care for people and attend to their needs. What, what can you do to help the people in your life? And another way also here is what are, what are things they could do for you? You know, when Jesus, what did Jesus say when he went to the woman at the well? He said, could you give me some water? Jesus had a need. Jesus was thirsty. And he began the conversation by his own need. That Rich Richardson said, one of our greatest assets is our vulnerability. We thought one of our greatest assets was having all the right answers. But sometimes our vulnerability and need can be a door that God uses to open. The final S is share your story. Once you build a relationship and earn trust, look for ways so you can share the story of how Jesus is transforming your life and the world. 
And so when you get this blessed packet here in March, uh, there will be a similar list to bring my world to Christ. But it says choose three to five people. Be realistic here. But you can start now and begin to pray about who might be on that list. This has been such a wonderful challenge to me. Um, to see how God can open up opportunities in the simplest of, of ways. I, um, I got my hair cut yesterday. How do you like it? I kind of like it, actually. As I like to say, I still have hair at this age. Let's do something. Anyway, um, but I've, I've decided that, um, and I, I usually just go to a place and say, take whatever stylist is there, but I found a new place, and I've gone to the same person twice now, and I decided I'm going to keep going to Trish because I like her. And, and we started a conversation. We didn't go real far. I, I didn't lead her to Christ. But, but I took an interest, she took an interest in my life, I took an interest in hers. And she had, I noticed she had some three or four tattoos written, there were sentences on her arm. And so I just asked her about her tattoos. Two out of the three had to do with strength and adversity or God taking the pain and turning it around. And so we talked about that. We didn't talk a lot. It was very tempting for me to give a sermon, but I was saving it for you today. Uh, um, <laughs> but just that... And she knows what I do, too. We've talked about that. And she was interested. And, and then I shared what Megan was doing yesterday about leading this workshop on advocates for vic- advocacy for victims of abuse. So um, pray for Trish and, uh, um, and the relationship that, that I'm just going to build very slowly with her because I'm really cheap and I don't get my hair cut that often. <laughs> I might start spending more and might go more often. But I want to encourage you, too, to be thinking that way. What are the natural... And she's not my project. She's not my project. She's one of the people, the few people, non-believers outside my Christian bubble that I relate to. And so I say, God, open up these opportunities for me. My knee still hurts, so I still see my physical therapist and I'm sharing with him a little bit too. I, I hope my knee gets better, but I'll stay in touch with him. These are the kind of things I believe that God calls us to as we, as we trust him and as we begin with prayer and just say, Lord, help me be open to opportunities for spiritual conversation that might come along as we do that. Now I just, I, I need to finish. It's getting late. But I just want to encourage you in terms of your own sense of who you are as a disciple. To encourage you, first of all, to be thinking about where do you feel most challenged to grow as a disciple and follower of Jesus? We talked about being disciples first. As I gave that long list of things we need to be learning and experiencing as disciples, what is the one that connects most with you? But secondly, I want to encourage you to begin the process of asking God who it is that he might want to bless through you. Might just be one person. One relationship just to take another step further. Say, God, I'm so uncertain a lot of this stuff, but if you want to open up a conversation that leads towards you, I am so ready. I'm kind of ready. Oh, Lord, help me be ready. (laughs) Whatever your prayer is, right? One or two people through whom God might want to bless through you. We're called to be disciples who make disciples. You can believe and better be ready that we're going to be talking more about this in the months ahead because I think it's really at the core of who we are as an inviting community that wants to equip people to go make a kingdom difference. The kingdom difference is more people in the kingdom, isn't it? Making a kingdom difference. Let's pray. Lord, I love your word. I love this challenge. I love it that you've put me in a place where it's stretching me, and I ask now that you would help each of us be willing to be in a place that stretches us. Convince us, Lord. Help us to look back on our life and see the places you've moved where we know this really is good news. 
And lead, Lord, as we look for those in our life through whom you want to bless, through us. We ask this, Lord, we pray it in your name. Amen.